Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. My name is Claire Sorrell, and I'm here representing Friends of the Knox County Public Library. We are honored today to welcome Dr. Stuart Brotman. He will be talking about free speech, 10 Principles for a Connected World by Timothy Garton Ash. Dr. Brotman is an American government policymaker, university professor, lawyer, and author. He is the inaugural Howard Distinguished Endowed Professor of Media Management and Law and Beeman Professor of Communication and Information at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Please welcome Dr. Brotman. Thank you, Claire. It's a pleasure being here. By way of background, I've spent virtually all of my adult life as a student, as a teacher, as a researcher, as a writer, and as a legal advocate in the area of freedom of expression. And so this book that we're going to discuss today, all of the issues are very near and dear to me, and I think to all of you. So in 2009, uh, shortly after President Obama took office, I was invited to serve on the Advisory Committee for International Communications and Information Policy at the U.S. Department of State. And working closely over those first few years of the Obama administration, with Secretary Clinton in particular, uh, a new agenda was developed for the United States, and that was called the Global Internet Freedom Agenda. And so we now have in U.S. foreign policy for the first time in the world the advocacy of global Internet freedom around the world. I obviously became very immersed in that subject while serving on the committee, And then a few years later, in 2012, I was privileged to receive an invitation from Northwestern University in Qatar to become its inaugural professor of communication in residence for a year. Uh, And so I got on a plane, and I went to the country of Qatar. I don't know if anyone knows where that is, but it's uh, essentially next to the United Arab Emirates and not far from Iran. It's really uh, central in the Middle East. And one of the extraordinary opportunities I got when I was in Qatar was the ability to travel around the world and to explore and experience global freedom of expression. I traveled to 18 countries, almost A to Z, Azerbaijan to Vietnam. I did not get to Zimbabwe, but I tried. And as part of that, I really had a a really deeper understanding of many of the issues that are discussed in the book and many of the issues that I'm going to reflect upon today. Uh, Also, I'm not sure if many of you know about Qatar's restrictions on freedom of speech, but Qatar is ruled by an emir. The emir has supreme power. And if you criticize the emir, there is a law that says that you can be imprisoned for seven years at least seven years. You can also be expelled from the country. And so it was a very interesting time to be there, and it was particularly interesting because I was asked to teach freedom of expression to students from countries that had very little background, very little cultural or normative understanding of freedom of expression. So it was just a terrific opportunity to expose those students to ideas that otherwise they might not be exposed to. And in particular, I was pleased to teach one of the 27 children of the emir. 
And, uh, and so I knew that every night she would go home and talk to her father about what went on on campus that day. And so I was always very aware of that seven-year prison and expulsion possibility. But I had uh, the nature of the way that the universities, the U.S. universities in the United States, had negotiated their agreements in Qatar. We were in a bubble. We had absolute, complete freedom of expression, academic freedom. And so it was a wonderful environment to be able to talk about these issues without necessarily fearing imprisonment or expulsion. So that lasted for a year. I came back, and then based on my work there and my prior work, I was pleased to accept another appointment, this time by the Media Institute, which is a prominent not-for-profit organization in Washington, D.C., to serve as an inaugural member of its Global Internet Freedom Advisory Council. So I tell you all of this because today, in 2016, I was so pleased when I looked on Amazon and found out that Timothy Garden Ash had written a book called Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected World, which is published by Yale University Press. Timothy Ash is an interesting person. He has feet in the United States and feet in the United Kingdom and other parts of the world. He is a senior professorial lecturer at St. Anthony's College at Oxford, and he's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, which is based at Stanford University. Uh, And what I love about the book, and certainly commend you to read it, and it's available in the Knox County Public Library, is that it's really the first book of its type that takes a comprehensive view of free speech opportunities and obstacles around the world. I'm not going to spend much time today restating the obvious, how profound the Internet has changed how we communicate and live. Today, there are about 3 billion users. About half the world's population is now online. And we have a dramatic growth in devices and smartphones. We are now at the point where we have more smartphones than we have people in the world. There are about 6 billion smartphones out there right now and growing. So obviously the trends of online growth will continue. We also have areas of the country which do not have wired broadband or wired Internet capability, but many new technologies are coming on board, particularly satellite technologies. Some of you may have seen that Facebook has some new aerial ways to essentially put Internet into rural and other areas. And so we will begin to see more and more online usage around the world. So Timothy Ash recognizes that that connectivity and this notion of free speech are inextricably linked together. We have access now around the world with the click of a mouse one or two times. So in the U.S., obviously, we understand this very well. We revel in the net's power to inform, educate, create, and sustain online communities. And we also see the dark side of the net. We see trolling. We see cyberbullying. We see revenge porn. We see ad hominem personal attacks. And unfortunately, some of those dark elements 
can lead to violence and, in some cases, even suicide. In the next few minutes, what I'd like to do is take you on what I call a gray line tour of free speech and the Internet in other parts of the world. What I've experienced, what I've learned about, and certainly what Timothy Ash discusses in his wonderful book. Ash does this in great detail and great color, but unfortunately he doesn't have a lot of data. And the reason is it is a book, and a book gets published at a particular period in time. And so that means that the data either is not going to be very fresh or the data might not be included because when people read it, they will say, why are we interested in something that happened five years ago? Uh, Fortunately, I've continued to follow this field and learn in this field, and so I'll share some data with you that's not in the book, but I think complements a lot of what Ash is talking about. Let me start with some good news. According to the respected Pew Research Center, there is broad support for the general idea that free expression in cyberspace should be a fundamental right. That's especially important as the net becomes the most prominent source for political news and for sharing political views. While in Qatar, I learned that more than 60% of social network users in Lebanon, Egypt, and Jordan use sites like Facebook or Twitter to share their political views. And in fact, that part of the world probably has the greatest growth, particularly among young people who are now using social media as an outlet for political expression. Let me give you some data from the Pew Center about what people said was important with respect to the net and the ability of governments to censor what was on the net. Here are the countries that think it's very important not to have government censorship of the net, and some of these countries may surprise you. The leading country is Venezuela. 93% in the Pew Research data of the people surveyed indicate that they do not believe in any government censorship on the net. Second is Argentina with 92%. Third is Spain with 91%. I know everyone is saying, when is the United States coming? Well, the United States is at 91% too. And then Germany and Canada are at 90%. Uh, Pew surveyed 38 countries, and in 20 of those countries, 80% of the people said that they thought it was important that there not be any censorship by government of the Internet. And 50% of that group said it was very important that there not be any censorship. Here is some balance of that good news. Internet freedom, what I just spoke about, which is not having the government interfere with what people can send out and receive online, is not considered the most fundamental aspect of democracy. Large percentages of those in the survey I just quoted say religious freedom, gender equality, and honest and competitive elections are more important. So what seems like a rosy picture at first glance begins to take a darker hue as we have a closer look at what's happening. 
Freedom House is an organization uh, based in New York, which is uh, the leading resource for surveying what countries are doing with respect to free speech around the world. They've been doing this for several decades. Uh, They're funded by private foundations. They're also funded by the U.S. Department of State. When I served at the State Department, we used this as a fundamental resource. Uh, Every year they turn out an annual report which looks back at the previous year, typically from June to May of the previous year, to assess how governments essentially function in the free expression environment, and they literally rank them in order. And so let me give you a quick breakdown of what the Freedom House has found in its latest 2016 report. They uh, survey 65 countries. Of those 65 countries, 24 restrict social media and messaging platforms in some way. And 38 of those 65 countries arrest people who use these social media and messaging platforms in a way that the government decides is not appropriate. Let's zoom in a little bit on those numbers. Again, we're talking about 65 countries. How many countries restrict Facebook? Eight. WhatsApp, which many of you know, is a communication service. Twelve countries restrict the use of WhatsApp. Seven, restrict Twitter. Six, restrict YouTube. Seven, restrict Skype. Seven, restrict Instagram. And the numbers when we look at arrests are even more compelling. Of the 65 countries, 27 countries will arrest people for misuse of Facebook. Eleven will arrest people for misuse of WhatsApp, nine for Twitter, 12 for YouTube, three for Instagram. I suppose if there's any good news in those numbers, Skype had no arrests that have been made in these countries. And so the bottom line of that Freedom House analysis is of those 65 countries, only 17 were deemed to have real Internet freedom, 28 were deemed to be partially free, and 20 were deemed not to be free at all. The fewest restrictions and offenses were Estonia and Iceland, followed by Canada, the United States, Germany, Australia, Japan, and the United Kingdom. Those are the good actors. Who are the bad actors? China, Syria, Iran, Uzbekistan, and Cuba. And the Freedom House report also showed that year to year, that is comparing 2015 to 2016, in 34 of those 65 countries, there was a significant decline in Internet freedom. And the most significant declines were in these countries, Uganda, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Ecuador, and Libya. Let's look at this in another way, which may even be more startling. 
Today, two-thirds of the world's net users, Internet users, live under some form of government censorship. And just to give you a way of comparison, the Freedom House survey of 65 countries represents 88% of the world's population. So very, very large numbers, hundreds of millions of people today do not have a level of adequate freedom with respect to communicating and receiving information on the Internet. I could go on with many different anecdotes. I'll just give you one, but you should understand there are literally thousands of these, and certainly you can go online and start looking them up. In Egypt, a 22-year-old law student was sentenced to three years in prison for posting a Photoshopped image of President el-Sisi with Mickey Mouse ears. Three years in prison. Well, we go back and look at the Pew data. There's also a number of other surveys that they've done, which I think are useful to talk about and at least expose you to. The good news, certainly for us here, is that Americans are most supportive of free speech and free press. But we have some neighbors that are also very supportive of that as well. In North America, Mexico, and Canada are just about equal to the United States in their support of free speech and press. Australia is also, and South Africa. And in Europe, the most supportive countries are Poland, which may surprise you, Spain, and the United Kingdom. In the United States, 95% of those who were part of this Pew survey said people should be able to criticize the government's policies. And by way of comparison, in the overall survey, uh, 80% of people said that. So it's a comparison between the United States at 95% and what's called the global median of 80%. 77% of Americans said that we should be able to say things that are offensive to religion or beliefs. Now, there's a dramatic difference between that and what the rest of the world says. 35% versus that 77% is how the rest of the world views the ability to say things that might offend religion or beliefs. And certainly my experience in Qatar reinforced that because there are blasphemy laws. Many parts of the world have laws that are very specific to offensive speech to religion. And you can be imprisoned or expelled for that as well. 67% of Americans say that it's okay to say offensive things about minority groups. And that's, again, compared to 35% of the world. So that gives you a few ideas, at least in numbers, based on very good research, how we feel about free speech today. We don't necessarily like offensive speech, but we're much less inclined to outlaw it, and I think that's a very important aspect to consider. What's the reason for that? Well, the main reason is because we have the First Amendment in the United States Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. And that First Amendment has functioned as a firewall between freedom of expression and government 
and the ability of government to interfere with that free expression, whether that's been in the public square or now online. Fifty years ago, we actually had Supreme Court justices who were called First Amendment absolutists. These were justices who said the First Amendment is as it's written, which is that government shall not interfere in any way with uh, free expression, freedom of speech. Uh, Their names were Hugo Black and William Douglas, and they were very famous in dissenting from a number of Supreme Court opinions where the Supreme Court said that it would make exceptions to that literal interpretation of the First Amendment. And so over time, we have had a number of exceptions. Obviously, we have exceptions related to obscenity. Obscenity is not covered by the First Amendment. Child pornography. Speech that leads to criminal conspiracies. Violations of our copyright laws. Defamation. And so the First Amendment clearly is not absolute. It's very sturdy, and it continues to be tested but it certainly is not perfect in terms of the protection that it affords us with respect to the government. And, of course, we're in this world now where so much of freedom of expression here is not related to the government at all. So much of it relates to working with the private sector. All of us who are employed have employment relationships, and those employment relationships, unless they're with a state institution like the University of Tennessee or an institution like the Knox County Public Library, if it's a private employer, the private employer has the ability to control freedom of expression and freedom of speech in the workplace based on that employment relationship. And many people frequently don't understand that, talk about First Amendment or freedom of expression rights, but our rights really relate to our ability to be insulated from the government as opposed to the private sector. I think Timothy Ash correctly conveys that the free speech challenge of our time is how to preserve and protect this open Internet when sovereign nations, as I've just described, can and will still control and often punish by law people for what they say and hear, and that's increasingly online. Now, Ash is a little on the utopian side. I think he spends a good portion of the book talking about what he calls universal universalism, and he bases this on the 1948 UN Declaration of Human Rights, which says that freedom of expression is a fundamental human right. Uh, that is uh, technically a U.N. document. We, all the countries of the uh, United Nations, there are 193, have signed on to that. Clearly, it can be enforced and never has been. It's really more of a philosophical document. Uh, I think what Ash would like to do is essentially have that document either be enforced or uh, have it sort of deepen within the sovereign philosophies and the legal regulations of individual countries. But even though I think he's on the utopian side, I think he also underscores what the global starting point should be for this discussion of free speech. 
quote, all human beings must be able to express ourselves and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas regardless of frontiers. Well, law helps us answer that question, at least the first question, which is how free should speech be? And as I've illustrated, in the United States, we have essentially carved out exceptions for how free speech should be. We have said obscenity is outside. We have said child pornography is outside, defamation, violations of copyright, criminal conspiracy. What I think Ash does here, which is quite brilliant, is to really not focus so much on the law, but focus on norms. He said that the more important question is how should free speech be? And essentially what that question asks is how do we as a civil society, how do civil societies around the world begin to develop norms of behavior? Some of those norms may essentially help the development of law. Some of those norms may function independent of the law uh, or less related to the law. We, can, we obviously put constraints on free speech, and we do, do that as a civil society. So, for example, one of our fundamental principles, not just in the United States but all around the world, is the protection of children. And so I think most societies recognize that children need to be treated differently than adults. And when free speech is applied to that, it means that we will develop as a norm and often in law special protections for children. Uh, That's why virtually every country in the world has protections against child pornography. It is a, a norm that started as an expression of what we believe as societies, and it's been crafted now into many laws, including in the United States. I think Ash, uh, again, is very wise in terms of understanding that there's a lot of tension going on in the area. I've suggested a lot of that tension is taking place outside the United States, although certainly we have a good deal here as well. And the tension is uh, really a process that we're going to have to work through, uh, both in the United States and around the world. Hopefully, as the United States continues to talk about Internet freedom around the world, and particularly in the new Trump administration, this will be considered a continuing foreign policy goal. Uh, Standing here, I would like to see the U.S. continue to advocate for more free expression around the world, particularly given the numbers and given some of the situations that I've talked about. Here's what Ash says. Quote, We should make the most informed, imaginative effort of which we are capable to see the matter from the other person's point of view and to understand the culturally embedded meanings of the terms they use. We must navigate the high seas of free speech by taking the boat out, encountering choppy water, adverse winds, and other boats. I think those words ring true. Uh, They may even ring more true uh, in the past week or so and maybe in the future. And I think they're going to be important as the U.S. goes 
back into the choppy waters of helping to navigate global Internet freedom around the world. So now, in the interest of free speech and expression, I invite any of you to come to the microphone, add a viewpoint, add a question, and uh, let's begin a dialogue. Could you comment on free speech versus what we have seen so much of recently in terms of both fake news and false equivalents? How should free speech be? That's the issue of the norms that we develop as a society. Clearly, as I've said, particularly in the United States, because we have the First Amendment, we have the firewall between government and individuals. I think a lot of the areas that you're talking about are not areas that are covered by the firewall. They're basically areas that are covered by freedom of the press and uh, people essentially communicating various things online. That, that suggests that these issues shouldn't be resolved legally. They need to be resolved what's called normatively through civil society. And that's part of what we're here, hopefully, when we leave. This is the continued obligation and discussion we have as citizens, which is to begin to do what Ash is recommending here, is that we need to make the most informed, imaginative effort of which we are capable to see the matter from the other person's point of view and to understand the culturally embedded meanings of the terms they use. And I think right now we're in a very interesting time in American history where I think a lot of us are going to have to listen a lot more closely to the views of others, to begin to understand them, to learn about not just the words but the cultural references and the orientation that they have. And that's difficult. That's really not where we've been traditionally, but now we need to do that. And so I think it's good advice that he gave here, obviously, outside the context of some of the things you're talking about. But I think the other side of freedom of speech is really the ability to listen. I think we need to be listening and speaking at the same time. Uh, to extend on that a little bit, one of the other things you look at is the motivation of why people are saying things. And clearly, there are a lot of people with financial motivation. What about the commercial interests that are saying things, as you say, that may be lies, that may be completely misleading, but completely for financial gain? And how does he address that, and what would you say about it? Well, he doesn't really address it very much. Obviously, I think about it quite a, a bit. And, you know, one of the phenomenon particularly in the online world, is we now have large entities like Facebook and Twitter and Google, which essentially have all of the power of individual governments. And yet they are not controlled in any way. And certainly in the United States, they're outside of the purview of the First Amendment. And so there is a good deal of talk. And I think that gets back to some of the discussion now uh, with respect to things that get posted on Facebook, which may not be true, which then get reposted and reposted and reposted. And then we, when we look at data, which shows that today the largest or the most prominent news site online is Facebook. And so essentially we are all telling each other the news, and it's a little bit like that old game of telephone where something starts and then by the time it reaches a person, it may be reinterpreted, facts may be added, facts may be deleted. So it, it's a problem. I think there's going to be, again, some 
hard discussions uh, here and around the world about how entities like Google and Facebook are either restricting or not essentially uh, looking at the what's flowing over their, their networks. Now, there's a sort of a reverse of that, which is that many of those entities, particularly Google and Facebook, have been very compliant when they go into some of the countries that I mentioned, countries like China, where China says, if we give you permission to come here for commercial purposes, you need to restrict certain things that are being posted on Facebook. And typically, Facebook will say, we agree. They say the same thing to Google. You have Google owns YouTube. They say, there are certain videos we don't want people in China to see. We need you, Google, to block them on our behalf. And Google says yes. And that raises the commercial issues that I think you're talking about. And so it's, a, it's an area, I think, of considerable concern. Uh, it's one, unfortunately, that Ash doesn't talk about very much, but I think about it, and hopefully you will too. What methods can be used to try and encourage foreign countries that do not believe in free speech to see the benefits of free speech? Well, I, I said I disagree with Ash's conclusion. Ash says the way to do this is to promote greater meaning to the 1948 UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's a wonderful document, but I don't think at a practical level that's the way this is going to be accomplished. Uh, we have something called bilateral trade talks, and I think if there's a positive element to what we're hearing uh, early in the potential Trump administration is that there's going to be an increasing focus on what's called bilateral trade talks. That means when two countries, the United States and another country, sit down and negotiate. Uh, in the past decade or so, we've moved away from those type of trade talks. A lot of our talks now are called multilateral. And so it means a bunch of countries are getting together, and obviously we've had these trade agreements like NAFTA and the TPP and a variety of others. But I think if we move back into a bilateral mode, that actually could be helpful if we put and keep Internet freedom as part of those negotiations. So as you know, there's been a lot of rhetoric about trying to impose trade restrictions on China or having them declared a currency manipulator. A part of that is you can go in and also negotiate as part of that uh, some of the uh, restrictions that China is putting. And why would, why would the United States do that? First of all, because it's the right thing to do, as I've indicated. And, and secondly, even getting back to the commercial interests, most of the major Internet companies are based in the United States. They have a commercial interest, and so clearly this is something they would support greatly. So I'm not sure this is going to happen, but that might be one direction, which is greater bilateral support. But that also requires a better coordination between the State Department and the U.S. Trade Representative, and we'll see if that's going to happen. We just elected uh, a president who PolitiFact found was mostly false, false, or pants on fire false 70% of the time of the statements that they analyzed, of course. I think they've found now that there are about 100 Macedonian 
anti-Hillary websites that were, they were basically just clickbait sites that made their money on advertising depending on how many people clicked on things. So, of course, they intentionally were as, as outrageous and as evil <laughs> as they could be. I mean, uh, if ever there was an argument against <laughs> unrestricted free speech, having a president who is essentially the most important person in the free world who is elected based, you know, in very large part on lies or at least misunderstanding of the truth, that's a real tragedy. What do we do? Well, I think the area of digital literacy, we actually do not have great digital literacy in the United States, and there's a lot of research and work that goes on around the world in terms of digital literacy. Some countries, uh, the Dominican Republic, for example, have made it part of their national policy that students be trained in digital literacy. That, that means the ability to go online and distinguish, as you say, what might be a, a real website versus a fake website, how to research facts that are then researched online and you can go check them, how to use fact-checking sources. Uh, that's really not part of our education process today. And so I think for all of us who are concerned about these issues, I think we need to begin to talk to our legislators and our educators. Uh, certainly one of the reasons I'm here at the University of Tennessee is because there's something called the School of Journalism and Electronic Media. And so we are hopefully training future journalists and future communicators who will then be able to be part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. So I, uh, I think that is probably the best approach here. I think we should be very careful in terms of saying let's restrict free speech in ways because we don't like the speech that we're hearing. It's going to be very difficult for us to advocate greater free speech abroad if we essentially don't have our own house in order. And as I've indicated, the alternatives are typically either restricting what people can see or what they can, how they can communicate or potentially arresting them and imprisoning them for things that are not in the government's favor. And I don't think anyone here would like to see that happen. So I think, uh, again, not looking at this as a legal issue, but looking at this as a normative issue. What norms can we set for society? And I think we need to step up and say that digital literacy is an important social value that we now want to have from the time that someone enters grade school to the time they graduate college and, of course, beyond. Yeah, one of the things that a lot of disinformation campaigns do, actually, is discredit and undermine the mainstream media. Right, but remember the piece of data I gave you before, which is that the, the most dominant source of news in the United States today is Facebook. Right. And so it is not essentially what is characterized as the mainstream media. It's social media. It's people hearing something and then passing that along to people that they're friends with. And those people then pass it on and pass it on. So a lot of people are really getting their news in a very different way than what was the pattern before. And so, again, the question is, how does a company like Facebook begin to develop policies 
that might address some of the issues that, that you're talking about. But I, I don't think the solution is to have the government essentially no. come in and either control what Facebook is doing. And, and you see over time most social media outlets, particularly Google and Facebook, uh, I think they recognize this as a, this is a hard problem. How do you how do you begin to control this flow of information and yet still maintain these values of, of free expression? And it's, it's a balance that needs to be struck, and it's not an easy balance. And particularly when you have a billion users out there, and they're not just in the United States, uh, because the signals that a Facebook or Google might send in the United States can promote greater inhibition of freedom of expression around the world. If Facebook and Google begin to restrict things here, some of the countries that I mentioned before will say, wow, we should tighten our laws. We should make things even stricter than they are now. And as I said, the trend that we see from Freedom House is that more and more countries are imposing tighter and tighter restrictions. If social media sites like Facebook are becoming a platform that a lot of information can be gathered from, should it be more on the user to check that information and see if it's like from a credible source and things like that, or should it be on like the platform itself like Facebook to fix those issues? Well, one of the areas that is probably most controversial is the area of hate speech. And clearly there's been a lot of talk of increasing hate speech on Facebook and in other social media. Here's where there's that distinction that Timothy Ash talks about and that I believe in is very important. And that's the distinction between law and norms in society. So the, uh, the legal approach obviously would be to try to control hate speech through some particular law. Uh, I, I could tell you where we are today in terms of Supreme Court jurisprudence. Hate speech uh, is protected by the First Amendment. We have a series of Supreme Court decisions. The most recent you probably are familiar with, the uh, Westboro Church, which has people who come and protest and say some very, very uh, nasty things uh, at funerals and uh, against gays and against military people and against people's religion. Uh, the Supreme Court said that is hate speech, but that is within the protection of the First Amendment. And so I don't see any future developments, at least for the near term, uh, in terms of the law essentially excluding that. So that means that hate speech, regulation of hate speech, needs to be developed as a norm outside of the legal structure. Uh, again, Facebook, Google, and others are trying to grapple with how they do that. And uh, there are ways to complain. As most of you know, if you're on them, you could send a message. There are takedowns that happen uh, right this morning. You may be aware that Twitter has decided that it's taking down a number of alt-right Twitter accounts. And so we see some activity in the area. Of course, over time, that may become problematical because we may not want certain individuals targeted and having their ability to communicate restricted based on a Twitter, a Google, or Facebook. So all, all of these things are complicated. For those of us who went to law school, the two magic words you learn in law school are it depends. And so many, many of these uh, are not clear-cut situations, but I think what makes the 
First Amendment and particularly the free speech area so important is that these are fundamental values that we can continue to promote and hopefully promote not just in the United States but around the world. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.